0: In this message today, we're gonna start with 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse one, and it says this. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. May the Lord bless his word as we have it read into our hearts today. The title of this message is David, part one. I wanna start a series of messages about the life of David. And this one is, of course, the first part of the series on the life of David. Very important man. And today, of course, we're gonna talk about David's uh, anointing to be king. We're going to learn, though, about his background and about the importance of his life and about the things that had to happen in order for him to just exist at all. And that is the amazing thing, that the entire Bible up to this point is a preparation for this point, that God's word was literally set to where David and his anointing as king is extremely important in the history of the world, not just the people of Israel. So let's first start about and talk about the background for David. I think everyone has learned something about King David. You probably know about David and Goliath. You probably know something about uh, his faults and some of the things that he did. But way back in the Bible, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we hear this amazing verse where the Word of God records that Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, they had certain punishments. And when God spoke to the serpent and as to his punishment, the Bible says that God would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, that is a division a conflict and between your seed the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent but the serpent would bruise his heel now that's a very important prophecy that's your first prophecy about the salvation that would come through a man and oftentimes we think about the scripture as a battle between light and darkness it is but It's not a battle between God and necessarily Satan. It's really a conflict between humans and Satan. And this battle between humans and uh, Satan was a loss to us when it first started back in the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve fell. However, God predicted that there would be a day when the seed of the woman would be rising up. And so that, that process to where God uses that person someday to crush the head of Satan, that is a process that's recorded throughout the Bible. And that process is something that God literally moved heaven and earth to make happen. It's an amazing story. Think about all the things that Satan tried to do to kill the seed of the woman. (laughs) I mean, literally, God has to keep his word. So the devil, all he, he has to do is rid the world of the godly seed, get rid of people as much as he can, corrupt people as much as he can, and he's guaranteed to live forever and do whatever he wants. Satan's plan is to attack humanity, and that plan is to cause all of us to lose not just our salvation, but to elevate him so he can continue on. So look at the the strategies he used. In the first tried to use Cain and Abel. Remember, he said, well, I'm gonna cause Cain to kill his brother Abel, and he did, but that didn't succeed. The line continued uh, under uh, another man named Seth. And then you get to the time when the uh, fallen angels corrupted the human race and the world got so bad that God decided to destroy the earth with a flood. And that was so awful that only one man and his family survived it through the ark. And that was Noah and his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then God predicted that it would be through the son named Shem, that he would be the one who the people of Japheth and others would shelter under. And so the sons of Shem eventually came into being and from them, one of the ancestors or descendants was a guy named Heber. And we get the word Hebrew from them. And eventually a man named Abraham is born. And Abraham had great faith. But Abraham was an old man. I mean, literally he was like 75 years old and God says that I'm gonna bless the world through you and your seed. I will make you into a great nation. So what does Abraham do? He believes God, but he and his wife do not have a child late in life. So they come up with a plan to get a child their way and uh, a different way than the normal way. And he gets another wife named Hagar to have a child with. And they have a child named Ishmael. But that was not the one God promised. God eventually visits Abraham and says, I am going to give you a child. And within one year, you'll have a child. Sarah will have a child. She laughed, but when she laughed, She said, I didn't laugh, but she really did. And a year later, guess what happened? She had a child and she named him Laughter, which is Isaac. But God on that visit also told another story to to Abraham about what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah unless they repent. Abraham tried to save the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham wanted his nephew Lot to be surviving the catastrophe. And of course, you know the story that when the angels go in and they try to save the city or save Lot, they only find Lot and uh, as a righteous man. So they pull out Lot, they pull out his wife, they, pull, they literally pull out the two daughters by the hands and drag them out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and they destroy the city. And when they destroy the city, Lot's wife turns back She becomes a pillar of salt and that leaves only Lot and the two daughters. And they thought the world had ended. They thought that they were the start of a new humanity. And so they did something very gross and try teaching this to 13 year olds. But what it's so important, because you've got to understand why does God want to save Lot? Why does God work so hard that he personally pulls Lot and the two daughters out of that city. And you know that story that Lot ends up having children after he got drunk uh, and uh, the daughters bear sons to him. These two sons were Ammon and Moab. They become nations and for the most part, these nations are a thorn in the side of God's people. But they, to this day, the city of Amman, Jordan is named after one of the sons of Lot. So if you look on a map today, you have Amman, Jordan today. Now the Moabites and the Ammonites, as I said, were enemies to God's people. Well, Abraham does have a son with Isaac being the one and he becomes the promised son. Isaac has uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau, but it will be Jacob who will become the one that God ends up working through. And then Jacob, through a whole lot of adventures and misadventures, he ends up having 12 sons. And the fourth son that he had was a man named Judah. His favorite son was a man named Joseph. Joseph was the one who was so favored that he got the coat of many colors. And Joseph was a man who God had told him that you will sometime rule over your brothers. Now, he may have made a mistake by telling his brothers this, but he did end up getting betrayed by his own brothers. And the one brother that decided, I know what we'll do, a guy named Judah, the fourth son, said, why don't we sell him, instead of killing him, sell him as a slave? You know, that was a really nice thing to do, you know, save his life and sell him as a slave. And they did that and they made it look like Joseph died. Joseph goes to live in Egypt as a slave and the rest of the boys live their lives away from Joseph. But God uses Joseph and blesses him as a slave, later as a prisoner, but he rises to be prime minister of Egypt and he becomes the most powerful political person in the world. And when famines come, guess what happens? The brothers have to leave their land and Jacob sends those sons down to Egypt to get food because Joseph had stored lots and lots of food. But unbeknownst to them, you know the story. At that point, they knew, uh, they didn't know it was Joseph in charge, but Joseph knew them. Joseph plays some games with them and sends them back and forth. But eventually, Joseph wants his real full brother, Benjamin, to be there with him. So he arranges it and sets it up to where Benjamin gets framed for a crime he didn't commit, and they're going to keep Benjamin there and send the rest of the boys back home. It's at this point that one of the great moments in all of history happens. A man named Judah, the brother who sold Joseph into slavery. Stands up and says, Look, my father is old. If you kill, if you take Benjamin, his last surviving son, you really will uh, destroy his life and he will die. So take my life instead. Judah had a very questionable background. Also, Judah ended up having a son through a controversy, let's just say a very big controversy and his child uh, was uh, a man who was born out of a not-the-perfect situation. Let's just say it that way. So Judah was a no-good in a lot of ways. But Judah stands up, and he says, please take my life instead. That's when Joseph orders his men out he cries, he breaks down, he reunites with his brothers, he says, I'm I am Joseph, your brother. And he reunites with his brothers, he befriends them, he tells them to go get their father, tell my father that I'm alive and live there. So they lived in Egypt and, until the day they die. And they their children live in Egypt. But before uh, Jacob dies, he sees his son Joseph and he Is so happy that he blesses his two sons. And he also blesses the other sons, but he predicts that of all the sons, the one son that is going to be the ruling tribe would not be Joseph, although in a way he would be, uh, but actually it would be Judah. Judah would be the lead tribe. Let's fast forward. The people get rescued out of Egypt through uh, the works of the Lord and through Moses. And when they go into the wilderness, they survive through their own faults and through uh, God's miracles. They establish tabernacle worship and then they go uh, after 40 years into their land again, to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, they divide the land up according to tribes. And the tribe of Judah gets southern Israel and gets the land where Rachel had been buried. Remember, Rachel was Jacob's favorite uh, wife. And and she was buried in a little place called Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, there was a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz was a single man. Uh, But one day he discovers that there's a stranger who's working there in his land, a Moabitess, a descendant of Lot in that other very questionable uh, uh, birthing, I guess you could say. And this woman's name was Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth end up falling in love and getting married. And when they get married, they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named... Jesse. And now we get to David, part one. This is why when God said, go to Bethlehem, he's going to the house of Jesse, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Literally God moved all those events together to make this happen. Now Samuel had worked for Saul. Now Samuel had already anointed Saul to be king many years earlier. Now Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin was given a favor because remember the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. So the first king of Israel was one who was a descendant of Benjamin. And in that process, uh, Saul disobeyed the Lord and God rejected Saul, so God's gonna get a new king. And in David part one we learn and are introduced to David so Samuel's afraid. He says, uh, "If I go, Saul is going to kill me." You know, it's nice to know that these people in the Bible were not unrealistic. They were real people. They weren't. They didn't want to go die. They wanted to live. If you feel guilty because you are, don't want to die, don't feel guilty. That's a natural thing that God put in you. You need to live as long as you can to honor the Lord. And but, but But don't live dangerously and don't unnecessarily risk your life because you can shorten your life. In this case, Samuel didn't want to shorten his life. So he says, if I go, the word will go out and then I'll be in trouble. But the Lord says, go ahead, take a heifer and just go there and perform a sacrifice. Nobody's going to say anything. So he goes. And when he gets there, God says that you will find a son of Jesse and you will anoint him to be king. Well, Jesse's got eight sons. So which one is he gonna pick? You know, he doesn't know. So let's read further and find out how David gets picked. And this is going to be in verse number four of 1 Samuel 16. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? You know, it's kind of like when people see a whole lot of cops around. They're saying, "Uh "Uh-oh, somebody's in trouble." You know, what we should we be afraid? And Samuel was the kind of guy that, if he visited you, he may be visiting you because you've been naughty and not nice, and he may be actually uh, going to send the judgment of God on you. And they were a little apprehensive, so they said, "Why are you here? (laughs) Did we do something wrong? Are we in trouble? You know, are we in trouble?" I think we all worry, don't we? When God visits us maybe, or sends somebody to talk to us. But, but notice he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab. Now that's the oldest son of Jesse, And Samuel just sees this guy, and Eliab was just the perfect character to be a king. He just looked like a king. He had princely qualities. And and this is what Samuel said. He said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. See, he's thinking in his heart, that's the guy. Be careful about what you think about first impressions be careful about what you think about any impressions because even a godly man like Samuel can get it wrong. And you probably have gotten it wrong in the past when you've made judgments just on the surface instead of waiting. So Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But in verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, I do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's a very important verse because what do, what I think almost every generation concentrates on our appearance, on the external, on how we look, and trying to look better, trying to be presenting ourselves better to the world, that people will have a good impression of us. And yet, God doesn't get impressed by any of that. He doesn't need the external. He knows the internal. In other words, he knows the real you, and he knows the real me. And so he knew the sons of Jesse. He knew their hearts. None of them were perfect men. So it makes me wonder if God's choosing one of these and because he's looking at the heart, what is he looking for that he's going to pick one? Well, we'll continue. So Jesse called Abinadab, that's the second son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. (laughs) Not this one either then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, "'Neither has the Lord chosen this one.'" That's three. "'Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, "'The Lord has not chosen these.'" And I'm sure they're all scratching their heads saying, "'What is going on here? "'Why aren't these sons being chosen?' And Samuel said to Jesse, "'Are all the young men here?' Then he said, "'There remains yet the youngest.'" And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, when you would have a feast in those days, it would be a big deal. It would be a lot of fine food. I mean, one thing I've learned about growing up in in Baptist churches is that when we have a meal, they're generally good. I cannot name any of the meals that I've had uh, collectively at churches that I did not find very agreeable. They, they were good because even when I might not like everything on the, on the menu, they had something there that I really liked. I heard a story about an old hippie. That was a strange story, and, and I can assure you it's not a true story. So it's a fictional story, but I, I'm going to tell it anyway. Anyway, it's a story about this old hippie. He goes into this restaurant. He's, he goes in with, a, with an ostrich. And as he goes into the restaurant and sits down, he orders a meal and he says, I would like to have hamburger, fries, and a Coke. And so the the waitress looks at the ostrich. The ostrich nods in agreement. I agree. And then when they get ready to pay, the waitress says that'll be $15.32. The man reaches into his pocket and exactly $15.32 he has for that waitress. So he goes back the next week. And he says, I would like to have a chicken sandwich and I would like to have some some potatoes and uh, some mashed potatoes and I would like to have a dessert. And the ostrich nods in agreement. I agree. And she says, well, this will be $18.23. He reaches into his pocket, $18.23. So the next week he goes again and this time... It, he says, I would like to have a steak dinner, make sure I have salad, make sure I have all the fixings, make sure I have dessert, and the ostrich agrees. So this time she says the, the, the tab is $46.30. Man reaches in, pulls out everything, and gives exact change right out of his pocket. Everything out, perfect. So the waitress says, how, how is this possible that every time you come in here, You have perfect change. He says, well, years ago, I found a lamp and I rubbed it and there was a genie and gave me two wishes. And I wished that every time I needed to pay for something, I'd have exactly the amount of money when I would pay for it. Well, the waitress says, well, that's pretty smart. That makes sense. But what about the ostrich? Well, that was my other wish. I wanted a long-legged girl who would always agree with me. You know, God doesn't always give us all that we want. Sometimes, as the song used to say, some of the best things to ever happen are unanswered prayers. And so finally, when they got down to the last son, he's over there doing his job He's a shepherd, and he is just the, you know, he's the one that the older brothers are always dumping on and and giving a hard time, like normal life. They were not people who were unrealistic. They were real. So Samuel just says, look, we're not going to eat until this gets settled. You're going to have to stop what you're doing. You're going to have to bring that boy over here. That's how important it was, because Samuel knew that they're running out of sons. There's only one left, it has to be this guy. You know, Samuel, he he didn't have to be a math expert to know this. So he sent and brought him in. Now in verse 12, it does tell his appearance. David was ruddy. That's an old phrase, meaning he was kind of a fair skinned. He had reddish hair, probably, probably had freckles. So if you've ever seen somebody who's redheaded and freckly and you know, just normal, ruddy person, that's what he looked like, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. David is the one that God chose. That man is the man that God's gonna use. That young man is the one that God's gonna use to change the world and keep the promise that he made way back in the Garden of Eden, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You see, God uh, wants us to understand that the battle in this world is not between God and the devil, it's between us and the devil. And we, with Christ, can defeat Satan, but we have to have a salvation that is through a man. And that man is going to be one of the descendants of this man, David. Well, let's read further. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So Samuel shows up, he anoints David, and at that moment, almost like in the baptism of Jesus, at that moment, David receives a special, I guess, issuing forth of the spirit of God so that he will have God's presence with him and in a unique way. Now, later in the scripture through the New Testament, we learned that the Holy Spirit would arrive at Pentecost and every person who believes can have that same experience but this was very unique, it was rare. It would happen to people like prophets, it happened to kings. But in this case, David, the last son, the eighth son becomes the anointed one. As we look at the story of David part one, it's very important to know that David as a shepherd, he didn't waste his time. He was a hard working young man. As a shepherd, he was not idle. He used his free time wisely. And when he was growing up, the one thing that he did that I think impressed the Lord the most was that he would write songs and psalms, and the psalm is like a combination of a poem and a song, but he would write songs and psalms unto the Lord and he would play the lyre, which was like a stringed instrument, and he would play this music because he had time. And I'm sure that the sheep, when they heard David playing his music, knew that that's their master. That's the one who's watching over me playing that music. And David, he was a man who was also, uh, all, he had a chip on his shoulder because what happens oftentimes with young, the youngest sons? They get beat up by the older sons, isn't that right? So they gotta be tougher. And so he was tough, he was tough like nails. And, he could, and, and when you had to watch over your sheep, you had all kinds of animals who were trying to attack your sheep and kill. So you would have to fight off those trying to kill the sheep. I mean, he was a fighter and he was a musician, but the main thing he did is he loved God. He loved God in his earliest years, he loved God. I believe that there was nobody in the Bible that it it really shows that loved God more other than Jesus, than this guy, David, he really loved God. He had a strong, fierce loyalty to the Lord and he sang and made music to the Lord and many of the Psalms are written by David. And as you read the Psalms, you learn of his experience and how he uses that experience to help us today. There's not a single one of you who have not heard this one but it's got to be one of the most famous poems ever written and it's you probably know it by heart but I'm gonna read it to you because think about how David loved God and how he uses his experience as a shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, is God your shepherd? He was David's. (laughs) He says, I'm not gonna do without, I'm gonna have what I need. I'm going to be provided for. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. You can imagine what was the one thing in the Middle East that you valued, you valued having water and you valued having grass because when you had the green pastures, your flocks could be fed. He leads me beside the still waters. Sheep are frightened of running water and so they need to have calm waters so that they are going to drink and be able to make it. It's kind of hard, isn't it? that when we try to go through life, if, if our hearts are stirred up, if our circumstances are filled with drama left and right, and we've got too much conflict going on and all the sounds of, and the turmoil and the tumult that is surrounding us, it's kind of hard to do your duty and just take time to do what God wants, which is to eat the word directly from the Bible and live off of it. You see, we need to be at peace. We need to be calm. And so he gives the sheep steel waters. He restores my soul. There's not a single person who does not need to have their batteries recharged. There's not a single person who doesn't, after a, a difficult time, need to be refreshed. And so your souls must be restored. Why do we try to have revival services? Because the world is moving us against ourselves and gravitation of this world brings us down. We need to be restored. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Oh, there's so many wrong paths we can go, and sheep are not very smart. They'll go the wrong way almost every time. They have to be led in the correct direction. And he does it for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, David knew he had his rod, he had his staff, he could fight off any of the animals trying to kill his sheep. And they knew he was there and they they were not afraid. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. David, I'm sure wrote this, understanding that he was God's anointed and that he was a shepherd, but that God was the shepherd who gave him his anointing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. By the way, it did. Those things followed him. They never, ever left him. He left them, but they never left him. And he kept on getting mercy from God, even when he did wrong. All the days of his life. Notice that goodness and mercy are gonna follow us, not some days, all days. So when you're having a bad day, look in your review mirror because I guarantee you, goodness and mercy are there, you'll have it. It's all the days, not not the good days, (laughs) the bad days too. You gotta believe that. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow, what a promise. See, David didn't waste his youth. He had these talents. He, had, he was faithful. And even though he was the youngest son and lowest on the rung, he was the one God was gonna elevate and eventually going to be great in the eyes of men. But more importantly, he's gonna be important for you and me as to his family. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord. Thank you for the life of David, who we started to study today. Would you bless this study? And and may we follow David's example by loving you, being faithful in the duties that you've called us to, and that we would be ready so that if you anoint us to do anything for your name's sake, we we will be ready to go. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this hymn of invitation that we're gonna sing together. Take my life, lead me Lord, hymn number 287. Let's stand to our feet.